Hello, and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast, recorded during the 42nd Critical Care Congress in San Juan, Puerto Rico. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Weinstein. Joining us today is Matthew Lissauer, MD, FACS. Dr. Lissauer is an assistant professor of surgery at the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Clinically, he is an acute care surgeon, surgical intensivist, and the medical director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at the R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center of the University of Maryland Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Lissauer is here to discuss his Surgical Intensive Care Unit's efforts to improve the care provided to critically ill and injured patients and their families, for which he won the 2013 Patient and Family-Centered Care Award given by our society. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Lissauer. So congratulations on, the, on this award. I think it's certainly, uh, especially as I review your work here, it's certainly well-deserved, uh, and I think your team should be very proud. Oh, thank you very much. That's very kind. Uh, can you start by telling us a little bit about your background and uh, what drove, uh, more specifically, your interest in this uh, project? Sure. Well, I am a uh, surgical intensivist. I originally trained in uh, general surgery and then did my surgical critical care fellowship uh, at the University of Maryland R. Adams Cowley Shock Trauma Center, and I've been on faculty ever since. Uh, Since then, I've become medical director of the surgical intensive care unit, and while I certainly love the aspect of taking care of the patient, uh, it really became obvious during my time there that taking care of the family was just as important. And we started noticing through our patient satisfaction surveys that we had room for improvement in terms of taking care of the patient's family. And um, not too many ICUs do specific patient satisfaction uh, surveys. Are you doing ICU-specific surveys? Yes, we have a survey that's specific to the ICU. It is given to every patient and their family on admission to the ICU. Uh, Filling out the survey is voluntary. Uh, and so our response rate is variable, but we collect them and use them for process improvement. Uh, specific to this project, we noticed that uh, we were scoring uh, less than uh, ideal or less than what we desired uh, when patients were asked how well the physicians, nurses, and other staff worked as a team, and how often the uh, patients and their families were able to participate in the decision-making process. And because those two uh, scores we really wanted to improve, we formed this supportive care team uh, to both evaluate the causes of those scores and to come up with a plan to improve them. Great. And has it been some time that you've been using those satisfaction scores? Um, We've been using them for at least several years now. That's fantastic. So what was the complement of the team? Who did you who did you bring to the table? So this was a really, uh, truly multidisciplinary uh, team. It had nursing leadership, uh, myself as physician leadership. We had pastoral care services involved. We had palliative care services involved. And we had our patient advocacy group involved. And so we, we had all of these stakeholders at the table um, to be able to come up with a comprehensive plan. The primary admitting services though not necessarily part of the planning process, were kept involved of what we were doing through regular communications and kept updated and had um, opportunity for feedback and uh, questions, comments, and and concerns. And so I think we really did keep all the stakeholders in. It was really nice to work with that group because we got a lot of different perspective and, and everybody, you know, contributed 
major portion. It was really impressive. And um, the patient advocacy group, mm-hmm. are those um, uh, patients and families or prior patients and families, or are they, uh, is that is a group within their hospital? Yeah, so patient advocacy in the hospital is actually a separate group of professionals. In general, they tend to be called on when there is a crisis. Somebody lost their belongings, a patient feels they weren't treated well or were ignored, and when a patient has a complaint, then the nurse will call patient advocacy and a member of that group will come and see the patient and they act as a liaison to try and sort of quell that problem to the patient's satisfaction. Uh, We felt it important to include them in this process so they could see the genesis of some of these problems and maybe, you know, anticipate them and stop them before they became a major problem. And and so we really felt it important they be part of the team. And, uh, as a as a SICU director myself, um, I'm pretty aware of uh, the admitting services uh, perspective, and it's oftentimes uh, a little bit challenging to get them involved in such a project. And sometimes such a project uh, can make them a little bit nervous um, about uh, you know where the lines of communication will flow. Did did you have any of that that type of issue um, with your group? Or it was actually surprisingly less than I thought it would be. Yeah. Uh, there. There was some concern. Uh, Some of the physician admitting groups thought that this was an effort to push palliative care on their patients and that perhaps we would withdraw support sooner than they might have planned. Uh, Through regular communication, we were able to alleviate a lot of those concerns. And uh, we'll discuss the actual project in a little bit, but one of the keys to the project is prior to any patient family meeting, the ICU attending as well as the primary team attending or their designees meet to go over goals of care, process of care, so that a, a coherent face is, is presented to the patient, and that's helped alleviate a lot of those concerns. Yeah, that's great. Well, maybe you can just begin to uh, explain the project uh, and how it was designed. Sure. So this project uh, was, it was really a labor of love. It took about a year to design. We had regular monthly meetings uh, with the entire team. We used uh, the evidence as it exists and went through uh, well over 30 or 40 uh, articles in the literature to come up with a best practice plan for how to support patients and their families. The interesting thing about this project is it in and of itself is not novel. It's the way we put it together. So every aspect of our algorithm and bundle is described in the literature, but we were, you know, our, our task was to put it all together. So the bundle is really a 96-hour bundle, and it's divided into 24, 72, and 96-hour bundle packages. So within the first 24 hours, and the patients are admitted to the ICU, we make sure that they are introduced to the team. So either the ICU attending or fellow or their designee, they are introduced to their uh, nurse. We use a relation-based nursing model, and so that nurse becomes uh, a valuable asset for the family. Uh, We make sure they have information on power of attorney and advanced directives. For instance, we ask if they have discussed that in the past, if they have advanced directives, if they have a power of attorney. If they do, we make sure that's in the chart. If they do not, then we offer them advice and support and um, uh, facilities to to make that happen if they need. Um, May I ask, uh, because it's a term that I'm not sure I'm familiar with, um, but uh, a relationship model of nursing 
Sure, it, it's it's relationship-based nursing, mm-hmm. um, where each patient has a, a primary clinical nurse that's assigned to them, so that when that nurse is on shift, she will always get that patient. So there's continuity from a nursing standpoint, and they're able to form relationships with the patient, with their family, advocate for the family, and it's it's one of the facets of family-centered sure. care. That's great. Yes. Um, beyond that, in the 24-hour bundle. Uh, They're introduced to a couple of videos that we've put together that describe uh, how the ICU works, what to expect, and resources that are available to the patients and their families. Uh, We uh, go through a good deal of effort to ensure that the patient and the family understands we want to treat their pain and that pain relief is an important part of uh, the ICU. Um, and, And those are the sort of major facets of the first 24 hours, the introduction to the ICU, the introduction to what to expect. And then the other big facet of the first 24-hour bundle is all of the ancillary services, and I I don't mean to use the term ancillary in a a bad way because they're all, I think, equally important uh, to patient care, Um, but the patients are introduced to resources that they may need later on, pastoral care, palliative care, um, social work, and the patient advocate all have an introduction within the first 24 hours so the patient knows who their team is. And so even the palliative care folks are uh, part of the initial 24-hour introduction? Uh, That is correct. Routinely. Um, In in our institution, the palliative care services really are seen as palliation, whether it's palliation of pain and anxiety, and not necessarily end-of-life care, uh, though they are uh, expert and help us when those issues come about. Sure. That's a tremendous amount of resources you have uh, for your patients. That's very impressive. I think that's one of the challenges of the project. Um, How do you export this on a larger scale? The group that came together to do this all have a focus on the ICU and and the SICU, and we do expend a tremendous amount of resources. Uh, Pastoral care, for example, would love to expand the concept to the medical intensive care unit, the neurosurgical intensive care unit, uh, but the concern is do we have enough manpower to actually affect that. And and that's what we're going through right now. How do we expand and and upscale this so that we can incorporate other ICUs in the medical center? But yes, it is a uh, a resource-intense project. Fantastic. Uh, I think I kind of interrupted you in the middle, but so if you wanted to go on with the next several hours. Oh, sure, (laughs) sure. um, So the 72-hour bundle, or or the three-day bundle, um, is really to make sure that everything that was supposed to happen in the first 24 hours happened. So we make sure the patients have had access to the video, the handbook, and their families as well. If they've read them or viewed the videos, we make sure they understand what they've read or seen and answer any questions they may have. So the the 72-hour bundle is really follow-up. We reassess their pain regimen. We reaffirm the role of the the primary clinical nurse. Um, We ask, has social work been by? We ask, has pastoral care been by? We ask, has palliative care been by, and if those services have uh, introduced themselves to the patient or family, and if not, it serves as a check that we can um, affect that and have those those people come back and talk to the patient. Uh, I think another great uh, facet of this program is you don't have to wait till 72 hours. So for an ICU patient that is stable, that has no concerns, where the family is comfortable, uh, this can occur at 72 hours. However, we have multiple clinical triggers. So if the patient is extremely sick 
or the family is anxious, uh, we can move that 72-hour bundle up as early as necessary. And that's actually driven by uh, the nursing staff. They're empowered to move that bundle up. And uh, we do have some specific clinical triggers for that. The, um, the videos and pamphlets that you use, are they uh, homegrown or uh, obtained through our society? Or? Uh, no, the videos are actually homegrown. Uh, they are done by our uh, nursing and, and other professional staff. They are separate from this project but included in this project. And what I mean by that is we would still have the videos and the handbook if we didn't have this project, the supportive care team, but we wouldn't have them incorporated into a formal plan. So perhaps the handbook would have just been handed to the patient or the patient would have just said, been, been told, you know, please view video number 221 and there would have been no follow-up. So we wouldn't know if they read the handbook, had any questions, or actually viewed the video. By incorporating them into the algorithm, we can ensure that they've had the opportunity to watch it if they desire. If not, we can ask them why. If they have any questions about the video, we can answer them directly. So it formalizes the use of the tools that we previously had. And can you describe a little bit for uh, the listeners what the, the what, what videos um you made or had already made before this project and uh, what their general type of content is? Sure. Uh, so, uh, and my, uh, my memory's failing me a little bit, but I believe they were made around the same time of this project. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't think they predated, but they were uh, technically separate but included in the, in the project. Um, the first video is really just a two-minute introduction. It's a hello, welcome to the sick you and a little bit about what to expect, and that really is a, just to put patients and their families' mind at ease. The second video is a 10-minute video, and, and that one has a significant amount of information in it. Um, it's, it's also designed to ease family concerns. It discusses our supportive care services, so it discusses what ancillary staff are available, um, pastoral care, palliative care, uh, social work. It discusses infection prevention. Um, we have... Uh, advice to the patients and their families that it's you know okay to ask the provider if they've washed their hands and describes our infection prevention strategies. Uh, we talk again about pain management because symptom and pain management is so important to the patients and their families. Um, it has visitor guidelines so it lets the patients know how often and when the visitors uh, their visitors can uh, be on the unit. Uh, we do have 24-hour visitation except during uh, nursing handoff and uh, it describes our policies related to that. It has some information on just some of the sights and sounds in the ICU, what to expect. If a patient's in the ICU the first time they hear an alarm bell, that can be very anxiety provoking. But if they're preempted that there are some common alarms in the ICU, this is what you may hear, and there will be a response to it that can often alleviate some concern and anxiety. Um, and it describes the SICU team. What, what is the component of the team? Who to see on rounds? Who the attending is? who the fellow is, who are the residents, what are their roles, what the primary uh, clinical nurse is. Um, all of the sort of facets of the team are discussed in the video. And that video is, is designed to really get the patients to understand the atmosphere of the ICU. Um, the handbook has some separate information. Um, it has a, a few paragraphs on how to partner with the healthcare team. It encourages them to let the healthcare team know what their concerns are. Uh, it has a brochure on common medications in the ICU. So even though as a nurse administers a medicine, they're supposed to let the patient and the family know what medicine it is and, and what it does, sometimes that, that brief communication isn't enough. 
So it has information on uh, proton pump inhibitors and, and other stress ulcer prophylaxis drugs, information on uh, DVT chemoprophylaxis, and it's, it's written in layman's terms so that the families can understand. Uh, the handbook and, and also has our satisfaction survey, so that's where it's housed. So as we go over the handbook, we encourage the patients to fill out the survey. Um, and then it has basic information, hotel information, parking information, other sort of useful resources for the patient and their family. That's fantastic. Very impressive. Oh, thank Very you. Impressive. I don't think I talked about the 96-hour part of the bundle. Oh, let's there's get a, to the 96-hour. There's a third hour. part yes, of the bundle. Uh, sorry, I forgot about that. So we talked about the 24 and the 72-hour bundle. Um, by 96 hours, if a patient's still in the ICU and if they're anticipated uh, to be in the ICU, then we have a 96-hour bundle. Um, at 96 hours, we actually provide a patient and or their family with a care journal, something that they can write down information, doctor's names, treatment plans, questions that they may have when the team's not around, so that when the team does come around, they don't forget. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in a patient's room, ask them or their family if they had a question, and the answer is, well, yes, I had one 15 minutes ago, but I forgot. So the journal is something physical for them to, to write it down. And then we arrange for a family meeting, and that's a multidisciplinary family meeting. It's with the ICU team, the primary admitting service, uh, nursing staff, uh, palliative care if necessary, and we ask the patients if, if they want them there. Again, social work if necessary, pastoral care if necessary. And additionally, we actually invite, or at least offer for the patients to invite their own pastoral care leader from home or from the community to join in on these meetings if they so desire. And again, prior to these meetings, we do encourage the attendings to uh, communicate so that the primary admitting service and the ICU team communicates and comes up with a cohesive plan prior to the meeting. And I think that helps alleviate a lot of family and patient concerns when everybody's on the same page. Similar to the 72-hour bundle, um, the nurses are empowered to move that up. We've done them as soon as 24 hours uh, as if the patient is sick or meets other, other clinical triggers. Gotcha. When was the uh, go-live date, if you will? Oh, gosh. Um, I, it's been... Um, we started with a six-month pilot project, and that's where our current outcome data is from. The pilot project was only for the acute care emergency surgery service, mm -hmm. which was about 30 to 40 percent of our admissions. That was so successful, we then expanded to the entire ICU. And so all of the admitting services from transplant to otolaryngology to surgical oncology to vascular to thoracic are now part of this so that every patient that comes into the unit um, is able to benefit from these services. Uh, the go-live date for the expansion was a little more than a year ago. Uh, the six-month project started in mid-2010, if I'm not mistaken. So I'd like to know what you've noticed anecdotally and also what types of um, outcomes uh, and measures you're collecting. Uh, anecdotally, the atmosphere is different. Um, I, I think one of the nicest uh, outcomes that I've seen is a more collegial atmosphere. So in the past, if someone needed social work services, we beep social work, they would call us back on an ad hoc nature, come by and see the patient, leave, and the communication was a little disjointed. Now, all of the social workers are on the unit on a more regular basis. 
we have more face time with them. We're, they're able to see the patients from the start of their care process, not necessarily at a crisis point. And so they're able to plan and anticipate. And it's made it just a much friendlier environment. Um, there's a lot more, again, face time and communication and collegiality. And that's been a, a very nice benefit. From an outcome standpoint, uh, during our six-month uh, trial period, we did see patient satisfaction surveys improve. Uh, for instance, uh, when patients were asked about their participation in decision-making and whether they were allowed to participate, uh, prior to the survey, uh, less than half of patients actually reported being part of the decision process. Again, that was one of the impetuses to, to create this. Um, afterwards, it was well over two-thirds of patients, and so we saw a significant increase, and that was only during a six-month trial. Uh, my personal feeling, and we're currently gathering data, is that the percentages are actually higher now, but hopefully we can have that data for you uh, at, at some point. Uh, when asked if the physician, nurses, and other staff worked together as a team uh, before, about 64% of uh, patients or their families thought we worked together as, as a team. Now it's well up over 80%, and again, that's just after the, the six-month trial. So both from an atmosphere standpoint in the ICU and from a data standpoint, we've actually noticed an improvement in these outcomes, and, and we're all very pleased because that was, that was our goal, and, and we're happy to see this uh, moving forward. Yeah, congratulations. Thanks. Um, I must ask, did you have either external or internal funding for this project? Um, no. We actually did this with very little funding. Um, the medical center was generous that, in that we had the FTEs we needed to take care of patients, but within the FTEs that were already allocated us, we, we rearranged to create this process. But there was no specific funding for extra nursing staff or extra people uh, to help with this. this. This really was a homegrown project. Wow, even that much more impressive. Yeah, thank you. Uh, what were the greatest barriers, would you say, or challenges along the way? Um, there were a couple of challenges. While you know, we talked earlier that the vast majority of the primary admitting services bought into this early and, and were supportive early, there, of course, you know, as with any project, there were some skeptics. And so there was a significant amount of work generated to uh, try and demonstrate to them that the project was worthwhile, that they should uh, participate. We were able to overcome that, but some of those same services, when it comes time for a family meeting or another aspect of the bundle, it's sometimes difficult to get them to participate. You know, in the I ideal world, everybody would be together, but uh, sometimes we, we have to work a little harder uh, to make that happen. So I think that's one challenge. Uh, the other big challenge is 24 hours is a short period of time. And so to have uh, four or five professionals have to introduce themselves to the family and or the patient within 24 hours is sometimes difficult. Uh, we have a lot of patients transferred in and their families tend to live far away. And so it's, it's and the social workers and, and pastoral care they have, uh, and palliative care and the physicians, we have significant other duties. So to coordinate the timing to get everyone together is, is quite difficult. Um, because of that, we make sure that our uh, professionals stop by, but if, say, the patient's intubated, sedated, and the family's not there, um, they can leave, we can leave literature for the patient and their family. And then when the family comes in, either the nurse or the resident or the physician, uh, the attendings or the nurse practitioners, will ask the patient or their family, you know, have you read 
what we brought, do you have any questions, would you like to meet in person the social worker, they can help you with X, Y, and Z, and then we can call them them back. So that, that 24-hour short time period was probably the other biggest challenge. Are you keeping track of, of how often you're successful in meeting the benchmarks? Um, yes, we actually have a uh, fairly comprehensive checklist that we're using to follow outcomes. So for instance, it tracks the date, who the patient's uh, nurse is, and it has a checklist for the 24-hour bundle. So you know, was the spokesperson identified? Does the patient have a power of attorney or advanced directives? Do they want to pursue that? Um, has the code status been addressed? Have they been given the, the folder, the handbook that we've talked about? Have they been offered the video that we've talked about previously? And has the multidisciplinary team introduced themselves to the patient? Physician, nursing, palliative care, pastoral care, social work, uh, etc. Um, we review the relationship-based care model and the, and the primary clinical nurse. And so we have checklists for all of that, um, either yes, no, not applicable, and if not applicable, why did we not need that uh, particular intervention? And so as we gather more data, we'll know more about how well we're doing uh, besides just the patient satisfaction surveys that have, uh, that have improved significantly. I think the other thing to talk about is the clinical triggers. Okay, yes. Um, one of the other facets about this project that's, um, I, I think, really important is Again, it didn't introduce anything new that we didn't have. It introduced how we present that to the patient and how we formalize the process of getting that information to the patient. And it also empowered the nurses to get that information to, that, to the patient and or their family in the most you know, expeditious and beneficial way possible. For instance, some families can't wait till 96 hours for a family meeting. So we actually, in addition, um, to simply the nurses saying, hey, we need a meeting earlier, we actually have clinical triggers that will expedite the bundle. So for instance, any patient who has increased or sustained lactate uh, is on more than one presser, uh, suffered from cardiac arrest, and that was the reason for their admission to the unit, is on extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, uh, required more than six uh, units of uh, blood in a 24-hour period, uh, are in septic shock, have traumatic injury or major illness that would affect uh, quality of life um, or have a predicted mortality greater than 40%, we actually move that bundle up so we can call the multidisciplinary meeting significantly earlier than just waiting till uh, 96 hours. Additionally, we look for psychological triggers. If there is anxiety, confrontation, uh, nervousness that we notice in the families, we can often alleviate that by moving the bundle up sooner. Um, so we're looking at how often the bundles are done at 24, 72, and 96 hours. But we're also looking at how often do we have to expedite the bundle so that the you know 72-hour portion is actually done at 24, 36, or 48 hours. Those are those are tough triggers to come up with, I imagine. Um, I guess there's a, you know there's always a room for discretion as well. So just the general gestalt that we need to we need to move this up. Um, what, what, did you? Feel a specific need to come up with specific triggers, or um, rather than kind of the feeling at the you know by all the practitioners at uh, taking care of the patient. I think what the triggers do is catch patients that maybe we miss. That somebody who may look okay from the nursing or physician standpoint, but because of their underlying physiology or diagnosis, 
perhaps they have a 50% mortality, it's important that the family understands that earlier. So, I, I, you know, it's not a absolute, oh, you've met this and, and we have to do this. It's a, they're in the bundle. Oh, they met a trigger. Should we move the bundle earlier? It, it's a prompt to have the discussion to expedite the bundle. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where it's value lies. And it does catch some patients that perhaps we miss that need an expedited bundle as opposed to waiting to the 72 and 96 hours. Again, I, I'm really impressed by this uh, project. What what advice would you give others uh, who want to implement uh, similar types of projects in their ICU? It sounds like a daunting amount of work, but it's really not. It is a, I think, important facet of care in our ICU, and we're working to export it to other ICUs in our facility because we believe in it so much. The work effort is modest, but what you get back from it is far more valuable. It is, uh, you know, the, the, the juice to squeeze ratio, so to speak, is fantastic. Uh, we noticed a real improvement in communication, patient satisfaction, in um, uh, collegiality, in being able to discuss issues with people who we didn't see as often in the ICU prior to this, whether it be the social workers or pastoral care or palliative care. Um, and, and so it does require some work, it does require some resources. It is not as daunting as maybe it sounds on this podcast. It, it really was very doable, and the rewards are just, uh, you know, beyond the, the data. The, the rewards are measurable. It really has made the sick a better place uh, in general. Yeah. Well, once again, congratulations uh, on both winning the award, but probably more importantly, uh, the uh, service that you are providing uh, for your patients and families um, you should really absolutely be commended. Uh, and thank you so much for joining us here today. Thank you very much. I appreciate the opportunity to talk about what we've done. And, and we're very excited because I think our patient outcomes are, are going to be better and our patient family uh, satisfaction scores are, are uh, rising in a positive trend. And, and I agree with you. I think that's the uh, important part of this, uh, you know, improving patient and family care. Great. We look forward to more work from you. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Cool. Well, this concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Thank you for listening, and please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash care for more information. You can now also find us on Stitcher and Beyond Pod as well as on iTunes. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Michael Weinstein. SCCM has a variety of new and updated publications for dedicated critical care experts like you. Visit SCCM's online store at www.sccm.org store. For SCCM's logo apparel, visit www.sccm.org apparel. Michael S. Weinstein, MD, FACS, FCCP, serves as an associate editor for the iCritical Care Podcasts. Dr. Weinstein is Associate Professor of Surgery at Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He is Director of the Surgical ICU and Executive Medical Co-Director of the Thomas Jefferson University Hospital Programs for Critical Care. His clinical and academic interests relate to palliative care integration in the intensive care unit, medical ethics, diaphragmatic pacing, and spinal cord injury. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. 
Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.